Welcome back to our weekly podcast. Uh, Today we will continue to move through the prison epistles as we finished up Ephesians a few weeks ago. Uh, Last week we took some time to follow up a sermon from our Youth Sunday on October 11th to really examine the roles of Barnabas and Paul and John Mark uh, that we observed kind of a reference to in 2 Timothy 4, uh, but also is spoken very thoroughly about in Acts 13 and 14, other places in the New Testament. And so uh, now that we removed from that and Pastor Brad has started um, his Wednesday night Bible studies in person uh, tonight, wanted to still seek to provide something for our members to listen to. And I know there are thousands of people that you could listen to online that are probably more qualified, more educated, and just more eloquent um, than I am. Um, However, there's something to be said for listening to someone that you know personally online and hearing from them. And I know I operate that way. And so we are seeking to provide uh, multiple ways for you guys to hear from your own staff here at Colbert Baptist Church. As we're kind of in this extended pandemic uh, at this point, you know, the ripple effect of some of the decisions that were made uh, this year um, are still seen in how we're doing church right now. And we don't know how permanent some of those will be. Uh, but until that plays out, we want to seek to, pr- to provide a way uh, to stay connected with you guys. And, and more importantly, to make you feel connected to us uh, while you're potentially not comfortable or not capable of getting to church in person um, for the foreseeable future. And so kind of on the edge of flu season and Um, cold weather and the winter and things like that. We're still seeking ways to keep people in touch and connected. So bear with us a little bit longer. I feel confident we'll uh, land on something permanent here soon, but right now it's kind of one of those hurry up and wait situations. So we we spent a lot of time going through Ephesians in uh, the summer and even into the early fall and uh, didn't really have a plan of what to do next and was kind of led to Colossians uh, just through studying for the the follow-up sermon and message last week on Paul and Barnabas and Mark and uh, and Silas and, and how that all played out and how God manifested his, his will uh, throughout that entire situation. And I ended up doing a lot of cross-referencing with Colossians and, uh, and, and Philemon and, and other letters. And so I really just feel kind of led to go this direction and so this will be a five-week study we'll do an overview and kind of a general survey today and then each of the next four weeks we'll cover a large portion of Colossians Um, and so it'll be a little bit longer than the videos because it's easier for me to talk and record as I go uh, here um, than it is for me to record and worry about the video and things like that so I'm able to, to do a little bit more than I than I was um, in the weeks prior. So it'll probably be a range of 45 minutes to an hour each week. And obviously the benefit of that versus you being here in person is that if you get a phone call or if you need to go to the restroom or if you're hungry, you can take the phone with you or you can stop it and come back later and finish it another time. Or if you're just not interested and you feel like you've heard it all before, you can just stop without offending anyone. So there are some benefits to to learning together this way, Uh, but I know I learn every time that I study for one of these, and I pray that you do as well. So with that being said, uh, we'll jump into uh, the introduction to Colossians and uh, go from there um, after a word of prayer. 
Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time together. God, I thank you for each and every individual who's listening. God, I thank you for uh, just their uh, perseverance during this time and their uh, commitment to you. God, we ask that you would just continue to uh, just bless us with safety, bless us with wisdom. Lord, we, we continue to ask for each of those. And God, we, we promise to give you all the praise, honor, and glory uh, for all the outcomes of everything going on as you continue to work in our midst. And God, we ask that you would just use this study uh, tonight and the, the following weeks to come to just grow us in our understanding of your word, to allow us to take away something each week, if not multiple things each week, that maybe we'd miss in the past. I know uh, your word is living and active, and I know that we can read something a hundred times, and the hundred and first time, uh, the Holy Spirit will uh, provide a new edge uh, for that sword. And so, God, we do ask that your word would just come forth, and it would just cut through, uh, once again, uh, anything that we have uh, keeping uh, us from having a true understanding of, of what you would have us receive and how would you have us apply uh, this word to our lives today. Lord, we ask all this in your name. Amen. For starters, uh, I want to make it known that we know very little about the agricultural town of Colossae uh, in the time of Paul, um, except where it was located. Um, it was located on the southern bank of the Lycus River in the Lycus Valley, and this is the territory of modern Turkey today. It was about 110 miles east of Ephesus, and at one time it was a very notable city. Uh, but during Paul's day, its neighboring cities, which was Laodicea, which was 11 miles to the northwest, um, and then Hierapolis, which is 12 miles to the, to the northwest on the opposite side of the river, had both kind of outranked uh, Colossae in importance by this point. And it was situated in a region that was very prone to earthquake, earthquakes, and one rocked the area, according to records, in roughly A.D. 61 or 62, and it caused very severe damage and it possibly destroyed the city. Uh, Laodicea was also devastated, uh, but because it had kind of jumped uh, Colossae at that time, it recovered very quickly, and Colossae may not have been rebuilt, uh, been rebuilt, and because uh, there, there are really no references to the city um, in Christian or pagan sources after about A.D. 61. So that means that Paul must have written this letter before this date when the earthquake destroyed the city. And so that kind of gives us this problem where primary evidence about the city um, is very, it's very limited. The site and laid in ruins um, but that since it's been destroyed by the Turks in the 12th century. Um, and the mound there uh, that's just in ruins has been surveyed, but it's never been excavated. And only a few literary references and a, a handful of things have survived and been found in those surveys there. And so that mound that's essentially been untouched probably does contain valuable information that might help interpreting the letter, but alas, we don't have access to what is in that mound, and so we're going to work with what we have and what's been agreed upon uh, by scholars up until this point. Uh, authorship, most of us would uh, come to this podcast with the understanding that Paul wrote Colossians. That is the, the conservative view, that is certainly my view, but in the last two centuries, many people have started to kind of question whether Paul wrote Colossians. Uh, the, the evidence of differences in vocabulary, uh, differences in style, and differences in theology uh, from his undisputed letters um, have led many people to examine this as a, possi as a possibility. And so, you know, what, what we can say in defense of Paul as the author of this letter, I won't really go into all the details of the arguments against him, but what but we can, what we can say in defense of Paul as the author 
is that much of the unpauline vocabulary uh, that occurs um, in this letter comes in the section that deals with this philosophy. And I'm, I'm putting that in quotes here uh, that Paul references um, when he's talking to the Colossian believers. And so we should not expect Paul to express himself in the exact same way uh, with the same ideas in every circumstance. Um, so this argument against Pauline authorship assumes that he was basically incapable of theological innovation in a fresh situation. And that's not fair for Paul, and that's not fair for us. Of course, we, we kind of pivot. We kind of uh, make ourselves available in different ways when different situations arise. It may not be our desire, uh, but sometimes we do have to change the methods, even though the message doesn't change. We talk about that often in the church today, where the, the core values and the core tenets of our faith have uh, stayed the same, but sometimes the method in which we deliver those values has to be modified a little bit. So how do we, as, as you know, 2020 readers, limit the parameters of what Paul could or could not have said? How, how can we actually make judgments about what ideas Paul could or could not have entertained, particularly since he claimed that he could become all things to all men, that he might save some? Uh, that's in 1 Corinthians 9.22. And so distinctive vocabulary to me is an unreliable uh, evidence to rule out Paul's authorship. Second thing that kind of helps us defend Paul as the author is the fact that nothing in Colossians is completely inconsistent with his theology and his undisputed letters that we, we know for a fact almost that he wrote. So some so-called theological differences um, have been pressed a little bit uh, too far. And so an example of that would be that too much has been read into the statement that believers have already been raised with Christ, which we'll see in a few weeks in Colossians 2.12. And so uh, while this assertion uh, does contrast with Paul's affirmation in Romans 6, uh, verses 5 and 8, that the resurrection with Christ lies in the future, uh, you could also uh, argue that the two passages represent opposite poles and Paul's thinking on the resurrection life. And again, we see this in Ephesians. We see it here. It's the, it's the concept of this already, not yet. So believers enter this resurrection life when they are joined to Christ, but its consummation still lies in the future. There's still something to be accomplished in this. And so Colossians stresses, stresses the, the realized aspect of eschatology and things to come for two reasons. Uh, the first is that it counters any doubt whether the Colossian Christians have already obtained a heavenly dimension through Christ. And secondly, it makes unnecessary uh, the visions and, the, and the, essentially the mortification of the flesh offered by Bible philosophy to reach a higher spiritual plane. The third thing that helps us kind of take heart in the fact that Paul did write Colossians are the differences in style. Uh, the differences in style are problematic, but they may be explained in multiple ways. Uh, Paul may have relied on a secretary who, who wrote the general line of thought, and then Paul, Paul signed off on the final copy. So maybe it was a little bit of delegation. Um, some, some people would attribute to the differences in style and vocabulary to, to Timothy. Uh, he is identified as the co-author of the letter, uh, but he may, he may very well have composed the entire letter. We just simply don't know. Um, and so some people conclude that Paul did not write the letter, but that his authorship lay behind it. And so you have these ideas being tossed around uh, by, by people who spend, honestly, probably much of their career to these kind of subjects. And, but this view allows Timothy to kind of be the, the theological and stylistic wild card. Um, his input is 
probably very similar to Paul's, uh, but it probably has its own flair, you know, no different than when Pastor Brad and myself or, or Tony and Jason or, you know, Mike and, and Julie with FCA, they all have the same heartbeat for their ministry. They all have the same ultimate vision, but we all have our own flair and our own way of saying things and presenting them in, in the moment. And so and Timothy's input could really explain any differences from Paul's uh, letters that we know uh, that he wrote. And so the stylistic differences may, may be explained in another way, though. Paul's writing to a congregation that he did not found and he did not know personally. And that could, could easily be a, a key factor in the differences here. So when we look at Colossians and Ephesians and Philemon, you know, we can see how this works out. Philemon is accepted as genuinely from Paul, while Ephesians and Colossians are disputed. Now, but the differing purposes and audiences of the three letters uh, explains the, the, the differences and styles and the tone of the three letters. And let's talk about that a little bit because Philemon is a highly personal letter of request, and it's written to essentially three individuals, and it deals with a very delicate private matter but it has explosive social consequences. Colossians is addressed to a whole church community that Paul has not founded and may never have visited. Uh, we don't have clear record of that. Uh, he feels compelled to write them about this particular problem to bolster their faith. Ephesians, that we just finished, is a circular letter that's intended for several churches in different settings that meet in or around the city of Ephesus. And so Philemon does not address a matter of a theological controversy, but a social issue. And so that's a difference. Colossians and Ephesians deal with similar theological issues from a different tact. And so you could argue that the themes and the image of, of Colossians are, are placed within the framework of a theological uh, journey that concerns God's reconciling work in the world. And the relation of Ephesians to Colossians is, is pretty much exactly the same of the relation of, of Romans to Galatians, if you're familiar with the, the continuity there. Uh, the issues that are forged in controversy are elevated to the level of um, a, a statement that is, is one of, of ultimate rule. And so uh, that's a little bit about what we feel about Paul writing Colossians, and you will encounter people at some point, if you have not encountered them already, who would argue against each and every one of those points. But again, to me, uh, Paul is the not only the conservative approach to uh, who wrote Colossians, but um, you know whether it was him who actually penned it, whether it was him who actually you know, uh, you know uttered every word, I don't know. I do think Timothy probably had a very... Um, essential role in that process, but it is 100% of Paul, and Paul was the one who was inspired uh, to, to ordain and oversee this letter. And so a little bit more about, uh, a little bit more about Colossians. Paul could have written this letter from Ephesus, from Caesarea, uh, or Rome, and cases could be made for each place. Uh, the close connection between Colossians and Philemon uh, means that what we decide about Philemon will determine where Colossians was written. And so that'll follow after this. I wish I could kind of do all of that as we go. I guess in theory I could. It would just take a really long time. Um, in the in introduction to Philemon, we, you know, we can present a more full argument for our Roman origin for the letter. And so we'll see that in a couple of weeks as we get to Philemon and kind of bring all three of these letters uh, together. 
Now, what about the context? What's going on here? Uh, what are the nuts and bolts that Paul um, is talking about, essentially? Uh, Paul's letters carry on conversations with his churches, and they serve as a substitute for his personal presence. You could argue that this is a very similar thing, except in this that I'm doing now, except in this context, I'm not doing this because of anything that I've heard about anyone listening that I'm concerned about. We're doing this from an educational standpoint, from a discipleship standpoint. So the, the recipients did not need Paul to explain to them the things that uh, were going on in their church that prompted his letter. But we might wish today that he had provided more information so we would have a more a clear understanding. But So we could really only read between the lines to guess what was happening. And the letter to, to Colossians is a little bit puzzling because anyone who has ever overheard a conversation on the telephone and tried to guess who was calling, what was being said on the other end of the line, uh, knows how firsthand how easy it is to draw false conclusions. We deal with that with Roman right now. If the phone rings and we answer it, he just automatically assumes it's Gigi and Papa and that they're coming over and that they're bringing toys or a surprise or we're going to their house or something like that. And so it's very dangerous for us to assume the things that we can't see and hear firsthand in a letter or on a phone call and things like that. So even today, we still deal with that. And we deal with that a little bit when it comes to interpreting letters, especially Colossians here. And so a philosophy, again, can't see me, but I'm doing philosophy in quotations, was apparently threatening the Colossian congregation. And it was causing some concern for Paul and uh, his, his partner there, Epaphras, um, the missionary who founded the church. So we do not know how Paul heard about the circumstances in Colossae, uh, unless he received some sort of a flash bulletin from someone in the church. Um, Epaphras may have informed him of the, of the brewing problems that were going on there. Uh, Epaphras' own imprisonment with Paul may have prevented him from coming in person to intervene. And so what this philosophy was and how it threatened the congregation has taken up probably hundreds of years of scholars' attentions for some time and I can say with full confidence that no consensus has been reached. And so uh, the, the remaining portion of this podcast today will be us kind of walking through uh, what this philosophy could have been, uh, what it probably was. Uh, and then, of course, I'll tell you what I believe uh, from, my, from my studies uh, about this, this philosophy that Paul is speaking against in Colossians. And so to identify the philosophy, we only have short snippets in uh, two, two sections that are really clear about their intentions. That'd be Colossians 2.8 and then Colossians 2.16-23. through So the problem is, is made even, even larger because this section in Colossians chapter 2 is the most unclear passage in the letter. And so many interpreters look outside of the text for some evidence in Paul's environment that will help stitch all these allusions in the letter together in a coherent pattern, uh, but it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. It's just, not, it's just not there. And then on top of that, to make matters even more complicated, we just don't have a lot of access to what was actually going on in the Colossian community archaeologically, you know, um, with any kind of evidence physically, and, you know, we're unable to excavate that mound so far and maybe it does hold something that would be a little bit more of a clue. Maybe it would have some things that would enlighten us a little bit further. But at the end of the day, we just don't know. And it's always dangerous to infer things that we, we don't know indefinitely. And so in defining the nature 
of the philosophy in Colossians, we should, with that in mind, limit ourselves to these direct statements from this section in, in Colossians chapter 2 and Paul's critical evaluation of this philosophy. And so we should also consider Paul's direct injunctions or commands or statements to the Colossian believers. And so uh, the first thing that I'll say about this philosophy is that direct statements in this section reveal several things about it. And it, it passes judgment on Colossians for not submitting to the observances of certain holidays and, and food and purity restrictions. We see that in uh, chapter 2, verse 16. And so doing so to Paul would disqualify them in some way or rob them of the prize there in, in verse 18 of chapter 2. And so because the, 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 the opponents um, kind of are hard on the Colossian believers in these matters, the Colossian believers apparently have not submitted to them yet. Uh, they, they had not participated in them. And so uh, Paul links his practices to regulations regarding food and drink and observing festivals, Sabbaths, and new moons. And so it issues prohibitions. He says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And so his other direct statements deal with uh, having an interest in angels and visions. And then Paul's negative appraisal of the error reveals the following, uh, that the philosophy had a, a vain deceit, that it was based on human tradition. It was based on the elemental spirits or principles of the universe. And he also says that it was not according to Christ. And so to Paul, whatever this philosophy was, um, it, you know, it, it was something that deviated from true Christian teaching. He says that it has the appearance of wisdom in verse 23 of chapter 2. And so the opponent's present pers you know, persuasive, fine-sounding arguments uh, that he, he, again, he references himself in verse 4, that can take you know, people who are kind of unguarded or young in their faith captive. He says that it's, it's kind of catchy. It's something that you can teach and throw around that's going to take people who are wet behind the ears a little bit by surprise and maybe mislead them a little bit in their youthfulness in the faith. And so the opponents were probably identifying their teaching as wisdom. Uh, and but Paul kind of talks about its deceptive appearance uh, of possessing wisdom. And so you, you may have met someone like that in your own life where they are arguing things as wisdom. They're arguing things as, you know, critical thinking. But at the end of the day, it's actually just a fancy way of being deceitful. And so, you know, I, I've always said I wish that that bad people and bad teaching came with a bell around its neck, that there was like a whistle you could hear when there was something dangerous, you know, being shared with you or being taught to you or being instructed to you, especially in terms of the Bible, but in terms of, of practical living as well. And that's simply not the case. And so, unfortunately, some of the most deceitful teaching that we'll ever encounter on this side of heaven is, and of course, there'll be no deceitful teaching in heaven, but on, on this side of heaven, some of the most deceitful things that we'll ever encounter are written off as some of the wisest things that we'll ever hear. And people spin this deceit, they spin these false teachings, they spin these, these feelings and these emotions and this mysticism that they have in a way that you know, almost, almost makes us second guess if what we're believing about the Bible is true wisdom. And that's what Paul is arguing against here. He's arguing against that whatever these individuals are coming into the Colossian church teaching, whatever they're saying, uh, whatever they're passing judgment, on the Colossians for, uh, for, you know, for not doing and not participating in, um, that it, it very well could be false wisdom. And so uh, the opponents have 
according to Paul, lost connection with the head uh, from which divine growth comes. And he talks about that in, in chapter 2, verse 19. And so we have to decide whether the opponents would have disagreed with this statement if they were Christians or agreed with it if they were not. And so then he, then he moves into a section that talks a little bit about um, more practical things that they, that they were dealing with. So the regulations about food and drink and the observance of holy days are only a shadow of things to come, uh, which is found in Christ. And so then these dogmas are based from this philosophy, are based on the principles or elemental spirits of this world from which those in Christ have been set free. Then we see that, the, that there are rules that are dismissed as human commands and teachings, which cannot compare to divine revelation. And so then Paul gives the following direct commands to the Colossians, in which it does. It sheds a little bit further light on the philosophy. Not only that, but also the Colossians' involvement with it. And so uh, Paul applies the poetic material that he opens with in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, to the Colossians in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, he tells them that they need to remain firm in the teaching they heard previously. He does not tell them that they need to renounce some error. And so Paul affirms in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, that they are already complete, that they've already obtained, attained fullness in Christ. And so what we can infer from that is that someone is claiming that they have not attain this fullness, that they need something more, that they're operating without, whether it be a, a ritual, whether it be not touching something, whether it be from food or drink ordinances, whether it be from all these different things that we've already talked about a little bit that are coming in this under the guise of this philosophy. Uh, what we can know from this is that someone is saying they haven't attained fullness in Christ because of something that they're not doing. And so that's a little bit, you know, fringe of, of, of legalism there. And so Paul, in response to that, assures the Colossians of their status before God in Christ, who is the head of every, over every power and authority in chapter 2, verse 10, and who has secured for them forgiveness of their sins. Wow, you know, what a, what a powerful response to someone saying, you're not doing enough, you're not living properly, you need to do this or not do that. And he's saying, look, you are, you are in Christ before God, and he is the head over every power and authority, and being in Christ, you have security for the forgiveness of your sins. And so what we can take away from that is that the Colossians are less confident of this status, either because they have begun to doubt it themselves or because someone from the outside has cast doubt on it for them. And so whatever the cause is, whether it's you know, uh, whether they're being hard on themselves or that, whether someone's encouraging them to be hard on themselves, they are doubting that, that Christ is head over every power and authority. And they are also doubting that their, their security of the forgiveness of their sins may not be as secure as they thought. So, in conclusion, uh, what, what do we, where do we go from here? What do we understand about this philosophy in terms of the Colossian theology and what Paul is talking about. And so rather than go back and rehearse all of these options that, again, more educated men, men who, you know, individuals and women who spend their lives dedicated to these subjects, rather than rehearse all of these different things, um, I'm going to argue the case for only one. The evidence does not suggest that visitors from the outside have somehow wormed their way into the church or that wrong-headed members of the church have become charmed or de you know, deceived 
by lures of outside cults and practices. And so uh, the opponents are outsiders. The opponents are someone who are outside of the church. And so the most streamlined view to me that, that explains all this data, all the things that we just discussed, is that newly formed Gentile Christians in Colossae are being badgered and pushed around about their faith by Jews who took offense over their claims. Now, Jews could argue persuasively from the same scriptures used by Christians. And so the result of that is that they would be far more intimidating and devastating to a young developing church than some sort of local pagan philosophy, a mystery religion, or even a folk religion with a kind of a potpourri of superstitions and mystic practices and things like that. So when the Colossians became Christians, they believed that they had become heirs to the promises of Israel. Paul affirms that they are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. He says that in chapter 3, verse 12. The language of Jewish self-identity in the scripture is the same thing, that they're a chosen people, that they're holy and that they're dearly loved. And so it makes more sense that Jews would take offense at, at what these Gentile Christians are saying and respond by kind of trying to cast doubt that their hope is false by trying to make them second guess that what they're believing um, is true. And that's what we see going on here. So if we're to trust the evidence and acts, uh, then Jews are the most likely opponents since most of the conflict uh, incidents are struggles with Jewish contenders. The opponents from a local synagogue are not prodding the Colossian Christians to follow their lead, but they're instead informing them that they are disqualified from being part of the people of God as defined in the law. So Paul's concern is that they might undermine the new Christians' confidence and their hope. So he's writing to curb this influence of a false philosophy and confirm the Colossians' faith. And we see him do that in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And so they are to take care that no one preys on them and lures them into a sea. We see him say that in, in verse 8. The warning against qu uh, questions of food and drink and festivals and worship of angels and visions assumes that they're not, they're not doing these things. And he says that in... Uh, chapter 2, verses 16 and 18, since it prompts the opponent's condemnation. So he, he's obviously noticing that they're not doing these things. He's obviously noticing that the, the opponents are telling them they, they need to or they can't, and that they're not, you know, they're actually not God's chosen people because they're not doing these things. He, he's observing that it's an issue there uh, for the opponents. And so Paul's response is, therefore, it's kind of a, a warning shot across the bow, but more importantly, it's a booster shot designed to inject greater assurance into these young Gentile Colossian believers. And so in Colossians 4, verse 12, Paul mentions um, Epaphras' concern for his friends in Colossae. He says he's always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. The key word here is fully assured. Uh, the letter's theme statement appears in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And so then, just as you receive Christ as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up with Him, built up in Him, excuse me, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. And so it shows 
that Paul worries about the congregation's crisis of confidence. Uh, the Colossians may begin to perceive Christianity as only some sort of, you know, uh, edgy, you know, new era type of Judaism, and that they may be fooled into thinking that only Judaism offered the fullness that they yearned for and protection from the, the forces around them. And so Paul responds that Christians will find completeness only in Christ, and that preaches today just as much as it preached them. And so Paul responds that Christians will find completeness and fullness only in Christ, that they have already been delivered from the powers and authorities. And we see the same powers and authorities that, uh, that Paul talked about in Ephesians as well. The following evidence kind of lends support to the view that opponents are rival Jews. So the first thing that I would say is that in the late 3rd century, uh, Antiochus III transported a substantial Jewish population from Mesopotamia and Babylonia to Lydia and Phrygia. And so the Jews in, in, the, in the diaspora did not retreat into the ghettos from this transportation, but they were actually well integrated into society, and they, as a, as a result of that, had open dealings with their Gentile neighbors. So the church, therefore, would have informal contacts with Jews in the city, and that contact was likely, likely to create friction because you've got Jews being not only transported, but transported to a place where there are Gentile believers, and so it's kind of counterculture or culture shock to both of them, but especially for the Jews who have kind of lived in this bubble at the time. And so devout Jews who refused to accept Jesus as the Messiah and scorn the gospel that accepted Gentiles as co-heirs would not sit idly by while Gentiles, in their opinion, kind of went through their scriptures and stole their hopes as being the elect and the chosen by God only as the nation of Israel. Secondly, Paul identifies the error as a philosophy in chapter 2, verse 8. And so those defending Judaism to the Greco-Roman world commend their ancient tradition as philosophy. Uh, they emphasize frequently that Judaism was rational and that its laws were in accordance with nature and not against nature. Judaism also gained reputation for wisdom, for high ethical standards, and for knowledge, just in general knowledge and understanding of the world around them. The third thing that kind of gives us evidence that, uh, that supports that these opponents are rival Jews is the mention of circumcision, Sabbaths, new moons, food laws, purity regulations, and, and they're, they're not random elements selected by some sort of local pagan cult or philosophy that's enamored with Judaism. They are distinctive Jewish identity markers that set Jews apart in the ancient world and confirm their special status as God's chosen people. And so we see all of these things being interjected by Paul into Colossians. So by referring to these practices, eating and drinking, religious festivals, new moon celebrations, Sabbath days, as a shadow of things that were to come, namely Christ, Paul can, can arguably hardly be referring to a pagan ritual or regulation. So he must be referring them to the Old Testament. On the other hand, if he's talking about Jewish ordinances, Paul could not renounce them as entirely useless because to him they were inadequate to accomplish salvation or perfection, but they did not, but they did point to the forgiveness, the reconciliation, and a new life fulfilled in Christ. 
Paul also brings up the circumcision issue in uh, chapter 2, verse 11. He talks about dietary prohibitions in chapter 2, verse 16. He again mentions Sabbaths, new moons, and feasts, and all of these things appear in Jewish literature as a standard way of referring to the primary celebrations of Judaism. And so these feasts, according to Ezekiel, preserve the identity of this nation in a special way as the people of God. And they show that Yahweh is God of this nation. So the mention of Sabbath also is is a bit of a smoking gun here since it was distinctive to Jews and only Jews. We also see a reference to not touching, uh, which reflects a fear of impurity from physical contact that we see uh, frequently in Leviticus and even it referenced in Isaiah. And so then the, the phrase worship of angels in chapter 2 verse 18 is exceedingly difficult to consider uh, in terms of a, another religion or another teaching or another philosophy that didn't come from rival Jews. So it doesn't refer to some cult of angels, uh, but again, in my opinion, it does fit with the widespread Jewish speculation about angels because it's pretty common for Jews to believe that the law was delivered by angels. And in Acts 7.53, Galatians 3.19, Hebrews 2.2, all kind of uh, give credit to that understanding. And insisting on strict obedience to the law could, li- could be likened to, to angels. It could be likened to kind of elevating angels as well. And so the, the opponents are not Christians. Uh, Paul's assertion uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 20 says, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? And this seems to imply that the opponents have not died with Christ as the Colossian Christians have. So in Paul's estimation, uh, again, the opponents have lost connection with the head. And so that kind of leads us to assume that they hold something else, that they hold on to something else, such as human traditions or you know, a tra- traditions that are outside of, of what we see in scriptures and the New Testament. And so Paul reaffirms the Colossians' relationship to Christ. And it, it makes sense as a response to a Jewish challenge. Uh, God has revealed the mystery to them. He's hidden for ages and generations. And it's the good news that the Messiah is among Gentiles. We see that in, in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1. Gentile believers to Paul were qualified for the inheritance of the saints, Israel's inheritance. So Paul declares in the strongest terms that there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, for those renewed in the knowledge, in the image, in knowledge, in the image of its creator. He says that in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. And so the consequence of that teaching, the consequence of those interjections by Paul is that Gentiles have become God's chosen people, holy, and are dearly loved. And we see that in chapter 3, verse 12. So what does Colossians mean for us today then? What do we take away from this letter? What can we, what can we understand about our relationship with our Heavenly Father through what Paul taught about this philosophy to these believers at this city that we don't know a whole lot about? Well, it was written to a, a negligible Christian community uh, almost 2,000 years ago, but it still speaks relevantly to us today. It gives witness to several things. It gives witness to the finality, the adequacy, and the all-sufficiency of Christ. And again, he says in this letter, by whom and for all things were made, in whom they cohere, and with with whom in God the life of the Christian and the church is hidden. And that truth will never go out of date. There will never be a time in the history of our universe when that statement 
that doctrine is untrue and we can't apply it to our lives. This is not going to happen. But the situation facing the Colossians is also similar to ours today. You know, they, they faced opponents who challenged and belittled the sufficiency of Christ and their hope in him and the hope that they had in a relationship with him. And Christians today, you know, we live in a secular society that, that regularly scoffs at our faith. You know, we, we in the West have become increasingly uncertain of our faith collectively as the body of Christ. And consequentially, you know, we hold it you know, to be very uncertain. We're not sure how we feel about certain things. We're not, we're not sure if we want to choose this and not choose that and so on and so forth. So when Christians are, are challenged and do not understand our faith, we are likely to water down the gospel and accommodate it to cultural expectations around us, which is extremely dangerous for obvious reasons. And so what, what we're tempted to do is cut out any offending articles of faith or, you know, put in ones that are, are, are more in accord with the fashion of the age and things that are trending around us with hot topics and things of that nature. So Paul wrote to the Colossians to help them grasp ever more firmly who Christ is and the rich glories of all that God had done in him. So when we have little confidence in our faith, we're going to be overly tentative in our claims, and we're going to be easily shaken by challenges. So Paul hopes to fortify to a similar church that's facing things that we kind of face today. Paul hoped in writing them that he would fortify the Colossians in their assurance of the hope that they had in Christ. And so the letter affirms that God's creation has a divine purpose, which is brought to fulfillment in and through Christ. And it affirms the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ as the fullness of God and as our creator and our redeemer. And so when Christians don't live with a deep sense of gratitude for what God has done for them in Christ, we will become engulfed in anxieties. We'll be we will be tempted to look for security in something other than Christ. And Paul repeatedly urges the Colossians to be thankful for the victory already won for them by Christ's cross and resurrection. So salvation can be found only in Christ. And Christians do not need something else or something more or someone else. The cross brings redemption, the forgiveness of sin, and triumph over all the powers that would oppress human life. Every believer is made complete when placed under the complete claim of Christ, and all the spiritual troubles and all the temptations of our world find only and find their only cure in him. So, my closing thought, the letter to the Colossians argues that Christians must not only be solidly grounded in their faith, we must also be ethically above reproach, discerning, confident, grateful, and ethical Christians lead lives worthy of the Lord and are pleasing to God, and they will bear spiritual fruit in, spiritually, in a spiritually belittled world. And Paul intends that this letter would help that kind of believer, a believer in a church that can stand firm in their convictions about what they know and about their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the hope and the assurance that we have by surrendering our lives to him. So I am looking forward to this study. I'm looking forward to diving into uh, this, these next four weeks to kind of give you a general overview of how this will go. Uh, next week, we'll be looking at the salutation and thanksgiving, which goes from uh, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 1, verse 23. The second week from now, we'll be looking at the letter body, the main body, which is uh, Colossians 1, 24 through Colossians 2, 23. 
The third week we'll be looking at uh, the ethical charges, which is Colossians 3, verse 1 through Colossians 4, 6. And then we'll conclude that following week with a very short passage and brief overview in hindsight, which covers the final greetings from Colossians 4, 7 through 18. I know this is going to be a, a very enlightening study. I know it's going to be something that, uh, that helps me grow in my understanding of uh, Paul's letter to this group of believers who are struggling. Because I know in our world today, we too are struggling. Uh, we too are tempted to look to the left and to the right and to, to, to eventually have the weight of what's being uh, spoken about the church and to have the weight of the words that are being thrown towards the church uh, is tempting to let them slowly start to sink in. Uh, but we need to be saturated with the word of God and the assurance that it brings and not saturated by the words of the world and the doubt that it causes. So uh, thank you for joining me and I look forward to uh, preparing and delivering another uh, lesson next week. And I hope you have a great week and a great uh, weekend until then. So until next time, see you then.